Here at Gays Talking Straight, we care about your overall health and well-being. We are not medical experts or healthcare professionals. Nothing we say should be construed as medical advice. If you have questions or concerns about your health or well-being, please contact your healthcare provider. We'd like to apologize for the audio quality of this episode. We still have a lot to learn at Gays Talking Straight, and one of those things is to remember to ask our guests not to wear leather jackets. Thank you for your patience. Welcome to Gays Talking Straight. I'm your host, Richard Lamberty. I'm here with Andrea Sacasta. Hi. Hi. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, really, actually. Um, So I wanted to talk to you about what happened when you were young. And you were a young gay man out in the world. So talk to us about that period of your life. Okay. Um, So I came out of the closet when I was 14. Wow. You know, from a very early age, I was very tight with my family, especially because we all came here uh, in 1999. So it went from living in Colombia and being a well-adjusted kid with lots of friends and all my family around to coming to what was then rural Poinciana, where I was the only uh, kid in my fourth grade class that spoke Spanish. And we went from having all these connections to the outside world to just being me, my mom, my dad, and my brother. Um, So it did make us really, really tight. uh, And I'm grateful for that. It also meant that when I started questioning my sexuality and I started thinking, you know, around puberty, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I started thinking, like, I'm attracted to men, I did not hesitate to tell them. And because of the young age that I was at, I didn't really know what to expect or get from them. And when, I want to make it very clear, my parents were supportive Mm -hmm. and they tolerated. But I mean, culturally, this had to be a challenge. It was super challenging because uh, my mom is, uh, my mom specifically is very Catholic. Mm -hmm. So coming out led to some very hurtful words being said words that stuck with me for a very long time and the older I got and the more time I got away from that the more I realized that she had her own journey to go on Mm -hmm. Um, you know we can get to the end of that journey later on but um, for me it was a defining moment because that was the first time that I ever really felt like there was something fundamentally wrong with me yeah. I, I had a, a friend when I was coming out to my parents, which was much later. I was 30 when I was coming out and you know, wrote a letter. And I, I asked a friend for advice. And he said to me, how long did it take you to become comfortable with yourself? And I said, it you know, took me about seven years. And he said to me, why do you think it would take them any less time? Which was brilliant. And that's really knowing that it shouldn't be like a light switch. Somebody saying that. It made it so much easier for me to be comfortable with the process because it's not an event. It's never an event to come out. Yeah. So how old were you when you first told your family? I was 14. 14. Wow, okay. Um, So once I let them know, um, my father was very accepting. He always has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, just told me, like, mijo, contar de que estés contento, quiero que estés bien, like, as long as you're fine, like, I'm happy. Um, I think that what really hit my mom hard is that, you know, my brother is autistic. So 
out of the two of us, I was kind of like the one that she put all her hopes and dreams for a for a yeah, grandbaby. Where the grandkids with. come from? It was. Yeah. And you know, since she had left all her friends in Colombia, just like we did, mm-hmm. I never, as a kid, I would, you know, when you're a kid, you're selfish. All you think about is like me, 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 me. And looking back at it now, I had become her best friend because. You know, she was also working in a new environment where nobody else spoke, uh, (laughs) where she couldn't communicate as well. People didn't speak Spanish like she did. So I was her confidant, her best friend, and she was mine. And when I did say to her that I was gay, it just created this, you know, rift between us because her perfect little boy was not going to have, in her eyes, with her experience that she had from being from Colombia, mm-hmm. I was now going to have a tougher life. I was now going to have the same things. Mm-hmm. And because of the things she's experienced with other gay people in Colombia, she immediately thought, like, my little boy is going to be discriminated against. He might get beaten up. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's in store for him. Well, you might, because that happens. Yeah, exactly. That's not just something in Colombia. Yeah, well, that right. certainly happens in Poinciana. Exactly. It does. So... You've come out, you know, you're a young teen. At what point did you become sexually active? So I actually did not lose my virginity until I was 18 and I was in the Navy. Uh, Yeah. So, um, so the, so the village people had it right. In the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, it was more, um, I was very chubby when I was in high school, you know, Food was my first comfort zone when I came here. So it was just eat, eat, eat. And all the self-image and body image issues that come with being, first of all, a chubby teenager. And then realizing that you're gay, everything that I thought of when I picture a gay man was not what I was. It was not some chubby Colombian kid. And that's something that sticks with you. You know, and that really played a big part into how I treated myself in the coming years. We we had a conversation with a lady named Lynn Wheeler, someone that I know from the chorus, about shame. And, you know, shame is common. I think lots of people experience it. I think most people experience it at some point. But, you know, in the gay community, there is these unrealistic standards and ideals about what we're supposed to be like, how our body is supposed to be, how big our dick is supposed to be, you know, what kind of person we're supposed to be. And it's, it's so hard because so few of us really are those things. And, and there's not a lot of freedom to just be yourself. It's, it's, you know, I was never comfortable with my body. I was never comfortable with how I look. I still, you know, it's like, you know, who wants the redhead? So you're in the Navy. Yeah. And um, so I actually, when I lost my virginity, I, based, you know, I went to a house party and I did end up drinking more than I should have. I was 18 and it was the first time that I had been invited to a party. So I was like, <laughs> and so a bunch of gay guys having a party. No, they were all straight because it's oh. the Navy. Uh, okay. But one of them turned out to, you know, be attracted to men. And, you know, he was 28. I was 18. Um, we ended up going back to his room and it was the first time I was ever penetrated and it hurt like hell. Mm-hmm. I cried. I told him to get off of me and he kicked me out of his house. So I found myself in the rain 
crying in Japan, no way of getting back to the ship. And the only person I could call was this girl named Anna, who she was my angel at the time. She picked up the phone and she was like, you know, I'll get you a cab back to base. And I think the most hurtful thing about that is that when it happened, the first thing I could think of was like, I really wish my mom was here. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of a lot of people, a, a lot of a lot of straight guys, a lot of straight girls, and a lot of gay men, their first experience isn't so good. But wow, that's that's pretty far out there on the scale. I mean, being penetrated is hard, even you know when you've done it a lot of times. It can still hurt. It can still you know practice doesn't necessarily make perfect at that. But at least you know what to expect, you know, for the first time, and to have somebody that was so unsympathetic, and and you know, un, uncooperative about it. Wow, I'm, I'm very sorry. So you got back to the ship, yeah, and you've been deflowered. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, then what? Um. Well, that kind of said. <sighs> Really, that reinforced everything that I believed about myself. When you already have low self-esteem and you see yourself in a negative light, and then you have your first sexual experience with this guy who represents like the all-American dream, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, six foot tall. There was like, oh, and he thinks I'm special, and then he just discards you to the side because you're not able to give him whatever he wants. It just kind of reinforces that of like, see, you are garbage. And because I like, I am grateful for my friends from the military. Um, though they have remained my friends, they were my support group at that time. But there was still so much you can tell to another eighteen-year-old stray guy. So they knew I was gay, even you know. But I mean, talking about yeah, I wasn't going to be like you know, you got fucked I up the ass and it hurt and, it and hurts. Like thrown I, out. That yeah. was not a story you were going to share. No, no, I barely told Anna, and you know. Wow. And yeah, that was just something that I kind of like kept to myself and kept moving on because... Did you have to deal with that guy on the ship? Oh, yeah. He was uh, he was actually in my division. So like my rack was here. His rack was right below mine. Wow. And for about two years, that was, that was who I had to live on, you know, next to. Wow. Yeah. So at some point, you moved on. Yeah. So um, let's just, you know, when I, when I left the military, I left my identity behind because my formative years as an adult were spent in this structured environment where I was told I matter because I was a United States Navy sailor. Mm -hmm. When I left and I came back to Orlando, I was a regular person just like everybody else. I was a 22-year-old that had only graduated from high school. And that was my introduction to the gay world because in Japan is this little microcosm of like, there's only 20 of us because we're all, all, you know, out here on base. Here it was like, this is the gay world. There's Parliament House. There's, you know. And you were you know. 22? Yeah. Okay. Um, I engaged in very risky behavior and most of it came um accompanied by alcohol okay. um when i left the military i just drank myself dumb and then sex would follow mm -hmm. um eventually at the age of 23 
um, I was volunteering at the LGBT center. And so I was constantly like, let's get tested, let's get tested, let's get tested. And one of those times, you know, I, I did get my HIV test and it came back positive. So what did that feel like? I mean, you knew you worked at the center, you were helping people get tested all the time. Yeah. But now it's you. Yeah. So uh, that's the thing is, um, I didn't really process it at the time. Uh, my mom and dad were there for me. And I think that's the beauty of our family being so close. When, so, so you told them right away. Oh yeah. It was like our family doctor actually called me in. They, my mom and dad being the parents there, they like came with me. The doctor told me and then he's like, is it okay if I tell your parents? I was like, yeah, bring them in. And they started to cry. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, but this is pretty unusual. Most young gay men, when they get that diagnosis, their family's not going to be there for them. Like You're that. right. I mean, sometimes even their friends yeah. are, are not going to be there for them. You're right. So you, you at least had something pretty extraordinary. Absolutely. Yeah. And I am grateful every day for that. My mom and dad still, um, they show up to the events that QLNX and the other organizations in the area put together. My mom actually put together the... Um, the aid school for the Central Florida HIV Planning Council. Um, she has shared her testimony um, of what it's like to be a mother uh, and what it's like to go through that. Because honestly, I am standing here today because my family was there for me. Because at that time, I felt disconnected from the gay community. I felt disconnected from everything. And my family were the ones that got me through it. Mm-hmm. I also realized that I'm incredibly lucky and blessed to be able to have that. Yes. Where you're right. The average, the average gay man, uh, especially a young gay man, is not going to have that same story. Well, what do you want the young, average young gay man to know? Well, the first thing that I would say, and you hit it beautifully with what your friend told you about the letter, is the people in your life have a lot less time to figure out what it means for you to be gay. Because by the time you tell them, you've already thought about it wrestle with it, had sleepless nights. So when you actually let them know. I mean, and even if they know, right, it still takes time. It does. You know, my parents knew, but we'd never talked about it. And it still, it took time. It took time for them to go from, we never wanted this and we don't know what to do to, we just really want you to be happy. That took time. And also, people can never get to that point if you don't give them the chance. So, uh, better to come out than not? Um, in my case, yes. Would I tell every young uh, gay man out there looking, hey, come out? Find your time. Find your time, exactly. And, you know, you can't come out to everybody all at once. It's this process. It's a never-ending process. It is. Yeah. yeah. What about, you know, sexual risk? You were out there doing a lot of things. Yeah. And it happened. Yeah. Um, you know, at first I really, I really hated myself for it because it was like you were helping people and volunteering and you knew the risks. So how, how does this happen to you? You're an idiot. You're this, you're that. And I found little, a little bit of comfort, like doing the job I do now. Um, I am the coordinator for the central Florida HIV planning council and when you get to see the statistics of how HIV affects different communities, mm-hmm. as a young Latino gay man, I really did not stand a chance against this disease. 
And we can talk about risk factors completely and be like, oh, you know, absolutely, risk factors play a part in it. But we also have to talk about the disparities about HIV treatment because it doesn't affect every community the same. No. You knew everything you needed to know. You were helping people. You were working at the center. And yet knowing wasn't enough. You were still taking those risks. You were still having unprotected sex. And knowing isn't enough. When when you have that shame, that self-loathing, that trumps knowing. It's also very important that my story has a lot of shame and self-loathing. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that everyone that ends up becoming HIV positive had this downward spiral of shame and self-loathing. No, a lot of the times, no. yeah, a lot of the times it's, and let's just be honest, uh, anytime that alcohol is involved, mm-hmm. you're less likely to use protection. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's the joy of prep. Yeah. Prep doesn't care if you're drunk. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You just got to take your pill every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, but ignorance plays a big role. I, I talk to young men all the time who have no idea of the risk they're taking. You know, they think it's enough to say, are you clean? I'm clean. And that's their whole strategy. So what do we want to say to those young gay men? I would say continue to get tested. Really ask yourself, whenever you engage in sexual behavior, is this something that I'm doing because I enjoy it? Or do I somehow feel less than at this moment and I'm using sex as a way to fill whatever emptiness I feel inside? And I know that's a very loaded question to ask yourself, especially when you're younger. Well, and in the heat of the moment? So honestly, there's a difference between I'm having sex with somebody because it's the heat of the moment. And at this moment, I want to get away from my feelings. Yeah. I want to feel like I have value or like I'm worthy of something. Yeah. And we don't talk about that part enough, you know? I think maybe we need to talk about that some more. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Gays Talking Straight. Special thanks to our guest, Andres Acosta. You can find our videos at www.youtube.com slash gayestalkingstraight. That's S-T-R number eight. Gays Talking Straight is recorded at Timaqua in Orlando, Florida. www.timacua.com. Timaqua, where they've been making art since 2000. Our executive producer is Judy Wallace, directed by Raphael Pignon. Video and audio by Benoit Glazer, who also wrote and performed our theme music. Our social media manager is Nathaniel Butler. Sabah O is our researcher and floor manager. I'm your host, Richard Lamberti. Thank you for being a part of Gaze Talking Straight.